All right, so some time ago, embarked in an effort to try to outline the, um, the timeline of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther and to plug in Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. And then I realized very quickly that I had made a horrible mistake trying to figure out how to clearly align these things because of the amount of awful scholarship that had been done on it. So the modern, the modern scholars um, use the secular dates that are broadly accepted by the emperors, uh, for the emperors. Uh, and so when you, what you find is even evangelicals try to align their Bible timeline for these books with the secular dates. And the reason it's a problem is because all of the secular people adopt the tradition of Ptolemy. And so this is a very old dating record, and the Ptolemaic dating system has all sorts of errors in it. Um, Isaac Newton wrote a chronology uh, of the Bible. Isaac Newton was, as you know, the famous uh, man to put together calculus in an organized form and to write the basic laws of physics that have been broadly used. Newtonian physics is used for engineering all over the place. Um, And so his work, he actually spent more time studying and writing about the Bible than anything else. Um, And that has not been broadly publicized. But one of the things he did was he sought to write out the chronologies of these books and to align them. And he found in his studies that it didn't line up with Ptolemy. This is not a new problem. He's aware. So what he did was some rough estimates on trying to align the astronomical events that were captured in Ptolemy and to determine if he thought that was right. Now, if any of you know anything about Isaac Newton, you also know he's a skilled astronomer. He was a skilled astronomer. And he found that he thought Ptolemy was wrong. So he was trying to figure out, does he need to figure out how to line up the Bible and Ptolemy, or does he need to ignore Ptolemy? He determined Ptolemy was wrong. NASA did a study where they tried to figure out the assuming that you have a continued backwards set of things like lunar eclipses and solar eclipses and stuff like that, using those, lining them up in what Ptolemy's timeline says. They wanted to see if where Ptolemy claimed to be in terms of Babylon, whether that would line up or not, and they found that they don't. So the Ptolemaic system is wrong. So we have a one of the things we were going through trying to figure out how do we line up all this stuff, and there are all sorts of problems, and there's naming convention issues, and different books, and how do you line them all up? And we've been using some of Pastor Kaiser's materials. Uh, one of the things that happened, I asked uh, Faith, my daughter, and Ethan, my son, to, to start organizing a bunch of stuff. So Faith pulled together like seven or eight different historians and how their timelines work and how they don't line up at all. And she put them in an Excel spreadsheet. And Ethan had been pulling stuff together and using some of the resources that we'd heard referenced, like Isaac Newton's material, uh, Floyd Dolan Jones, uh, Pastor Kaiser, some of the other things there and had helped me to, to get that, that outlined. And so we had those, and we were trying to figure out how to pull that stuff together. And I'd been asking Pastor Kaiser about things, and he was kind enough to share with me his effort to line up all of the dates. So that's what this document is, the two-page one. The one that's front and back is Pastor Kaiser's work on that. Okay, so this is his summarized document, and it has been very helpful. So... When Ethan and I, Ethan who's spent, I don't even have any idea how many hours, helping me to do this, who knows the timeline better than I do, having personally read through the details, I just skim the stuff and check on certain things and poke him and ask him to double check me on a bunch of stuff, made it way easier. So 
he has read through a bunch of this stuff. Some of you have probably heard him say Cambyses more than you would care to as a result. Um, and you just all nod and you go, of course. I know who that is for sure. So that, that work, we found as we looked through this, that Ethan's lining up of a bunch of this stuff. I think there was like one thing that we ended up going, oh. And so Ethan did an enormous amount of work using those same resources. Our, uh, James Usher and his world history is excellent. Um, I made Ethan, he had it lined up with the, the dates that actually that uh, Pastor Kaiser had reached. And I said, no, I, I want it shifted by one year. So I had a date I wanted it to be based around. Um, and so the dates on the handout that says exilic books or you know, post-exilic timeline. Exilic books, I think, is the one that I'm hiding from you. This is the handout. That's the holdback. And so this post-exilic history, uh, it was built around the, the decree from Cyrus to rebuild the temple in 536 B.C. And uh, I had him change it to 537 but I think it works better at 536. Here's the problem. All the sources you read all have like a plus or minus two-year thing, but I think I'm coming to the 536 being the number. So all that to say, you can see there's a lot of, uh, there was a lot of trying to figure it out going on. So that trying to figure it out was greatly helped by Pastor Kaiser's work, and the references to sources that are really neat um, exist, and I have found that the sources that Pastor Kaiser lists are the best sources. They really are. Um, so, you can look at the bottom of page two, um, and what you'll see there is if you're interested in looking into this further, um, you're going to see he references Newton's work, and he also references the NASA work that was done, so you can go to the website and get uh, get some of those articles, or you can Google it, uh, by a guy named R.R. R. Newton, um, and so he did this work on the, uh, on the astronomical side of it. So, the biblical dates are accurate. We obviously know that because it's God's word. Science doesn't prove it. You know, astronomy work doesn't prove that. But it is really neat when the Ptolemy gets embarrassed and the biblical timelines are supported. It's really fun. Um, and so you will find overwhelmingly evangelicals who write timelines, who write commentaries, who have study Bibles, have like absurd theories about how to try to figure everything out because they're trying to figure out how to make it work with the dates of Ptolemy. Okay, so, so that being the case, that was what took a long time to prepare this. And the dates that are laid out on the handout from Pastor Kaiser really help. And he lists out a bunch of the different uh, citations of where things are. So Ethan has also prepared for me a, a spreadsheet where we have the timestamp verses that say in the first year of such and such king or whatever, and trying to line those out. So that's something that I may use as a tool to help you guys in the future. But the, the issue is trying to get these things to line up. They internally referent, uh, they, they internally refer in such a way that makes it very followable. It is the commentaries and the timelines that are the problem. It is the academic work of evangelicals who start with something outside of the Bible and then try to impose it on the Bible that created the problem. If you just follow the biblical timeline and you just follow the internal references of the Bible, it all fits together very nicely. But when you are reading those things and then you read other people who have lots of letters after their names, your inclination is to go, maybe I have done the math wrong. 
And so I want to encourage you all to realize when you read commentaries, when you read academic timelines, when you look at stuff, that what you need to do is to try to figure out, first of all, does it line up with the Bible? And then secondly, once you realize that there's something about it that they're getting that's not from the Bible, but they're imposing something from outside, jettison it. Realize that their dating is going to be off. And this happens a lot with Moses. You'll find people, as opposed to saying Moses was in the 1400s BC, you'll have people referencing the 1200s. Um, you'll have this occur with this post-exilic period. And so as you begin to learn some dates, you can start to really easily discern between liberal academics, even evangelicals, that people that want to pretend to be very conservative theologically, but then they, they will adopt dating systems that make the Bible contradict those dating systems. Okay, so that's an important thing. The chronology of the Bible is internally consistent. And the chronology of the Bible is one of the main points of attack in our culture. Right, so think about the big narrative of time. Okay, the 13 point whatever billion years ago is the start of the Big Bang. The, the idea that the earth is 4 point whatever billion years old. These, these numbers... The idea of Genesis not providing us with a timeline, the idea that the rest of the Bible doesn't hold together as a timeline, these are ways of basically saying the Bible is a fairy tale. These are ways of saying the Bible is a fairy tale. Any one of these things is not a particularly important doctrine. It's not like knowing that the temple's rebuilding decree occurred in 536 B.C. is going to dramatically affect your personal holiness. But if you think that's what the Bible says, and then you think that that's false, that's going to dramatically affect your personal holiness. And so when we make the Bible's chronologies false, we have given a mortal wound to the Christian faith. So I, I think that those are important things I want to communicate. So believing the Bible's timelines to be true is very important. And so figuring that stuff out, and figuring out how to present it well is very important. Um, I want to also emphasize for you, again, that there is a, a list of good resources at the bottom of page 2 of Pastor Kaiser's handout. If you look at under notes, the third paragraph, you're going to see a sentence. It's, I think, the third sentence. And it starts with, See scholarly works of, and then it says, Sir Isaac Newton, Martin Anstey, Floyd Nolan Jones, James B. Jordan, David Austin, Philip Morrow, E.W. Falstick, and others for helpful detailed work. So those are ones that are those are guys that are trying to work with the Bible as the authority and deal with the timeline and work with that and piece those things together. So those kinds of of work are very helpful. So if you're interested in diving into these things further, uh, those are sources. And a lot of that stuff is available for free online, uh, but I wanted to point you to that. Now, um, this same source, the, using Ptolemy's chronology, is also used to argue against Moses. It's used all, all over the place. Okay, so in history, in general, the Ptolemaic chronology is the thing that is used to attack the Bible. It's the chronology. So what happens is there's an effort to take this timeline from Ptolemy and to use it for academic work and to make it so that it is given as a timeline and in biblical scholarship now 
people more and more seek to impose it on the Bible. Okay, that is the that is the establishment view. That's what broader evangelicals tend to do. And so you want to be aware of this thing. And we will start to, um, I will try to make it so that you can deal with that in an understandable way. And as you guys deal with homeschooling, you want to be aware of that. The timeline of the Bible needs to be your anchor of history. The timeline of the Bible needs to be your anchor of history and not some external sources. Now, if you look at the handout, um, so I, here's my, my other request, this Philip Kaiser one. I'm going to ask you to bring this with you to church. I'm not going to give you another copy. We're destroying the original. No printing could occur. Okay. Uh, we, anybody who wants the digital will send you the digital. So I'm going to ask you to bring this with church to you, bring this with, ch- with you to church, um, and to keep it as one so that you have it as a resource. And every now and then there'll be a reference to it. Okay. I'll have probably other handouts as we're going through things. But now, the exilic books handout. No, that's not the one you've got. The one you've got is post-exilic history. Great. Okay, we're looking at that. So I want you to look at page one of that. The goal here is to try to figure out how to take some of the information and make it more digestible. Okay, because you're going to run into things. You're trying to figure out how does this fit into a timeline. And my goal is to help to anchor these things in time for you. So you remember we read about King Josiah and how he was super awesome. And then we read about how he died. That was not awesome. And then we read about how he had a son who did evil. And ultimately we find that there's a replacing of him by the Babylonians as they take over. And so then we have to deal with the exile. Okay, so what I wanted to give to you, you have here the kingdom of Judah. You have the great empires and their rulers. Here's the kingdom of Judah at the top, and it's going to list for you their kings or the vassal kings that are put in place there. And that is the setup that helps you understand kind of what's happening going into, going into the exile and early in the exile period. So Babylon is the country that conquers. Babylon is the country that conquers Judea and Jerusalem. This is something that was, you know, this, this empire is something that was, that was prophesied leading up to that event. But furthermore, the book of Daniel gives us a prophecy, really multiple prophecies, outlining for us the, the chain of major empires, right? And he gives to us Babylon, Babylon conquers Judah, Babylon controls Judah, Daniel is there as the prime minister of Nebuchadnezzar. After Babylon, there's the Medo-Persian Empire. After the Medo-Persian Empire, you have the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great, going out and conquering huge areas. You have the split up of that. So you have these, these, these what are called the successor kingdoms. Okay? And that makes it so that Greek gets spread all over the world, which prepares the world to be Greek-speaking so that the Bible can be written in Greek so that it can be taken to the nations easily. Okay, That's what God was doing. God made Alexander the Great so that Alexander the Great could help the New Testament to be a best-selling book. Okay, That's what Alexander the Great was for God. Okay, So now, after that, you have the Roman Empire, 
which takes the place of the Greeks, conquers the Greeks in the Greek-speaking world. But there is a Greek-speaking dominance that occurs in Rome where the Greek culture and language end up dominating. Rome conquers the Greeks, but Greek culture dominates Rome. Okay, so that is, that is what happens. So those four empires, Babylon, Persia, the Greeks, and Rome, you need to know about that. That's the, those are the four major empires that Daniel prophesies about. The book of Daniel is Daniel saying that a bunch of times in different ways. He's like, here's some memorable pictures so you can remember these guys. Right? Here's a statue thing. The statue has different layers. There's gold and silver and bronze and iron and feet mixed with clay. And this is to help you to remember the four empires. And then he's got animal images. Right? So he goes through these things over and over again. There's these empires. And there's lots of details that happen there. So, so I've tried to reference for you the, the Babylonian Empire, for example, is referenced in Daniel 2 as the golden head of the statue. It's also the lion with eagle's wings in Daniel 7. And so I'm, I want you guys to connect these different parts of Scripture. I want you to become familiar with these things because there are big portions of the Bible that kind of feel like this, like, I don't know, what is this? Like, Daniel, like, what do we do with Daniel and what's going on there and what about these other books? My goal is to show you the Bible is deeply interconnected, it is systematic, it is glorious, and the public schools have made sure that you don't know any history. Right, the, the history class you took in public school was like, these people did things. Trade increased. Right, like this is this. They, like the goal was like to make it boring. History is hard to make boring. Like every boy on the planet sits there making noises, making imaginary soldiers blow each other up. History is basically that. How is this boring? How is that boring to anybody? It's only boring when you say, and these people did this, and trade increased. Right? That, is, that is what happens in public school history classes, is you eliminate the purposefulness and the utility and the idea that God has a story. There are so many interesting people and empires and events. And so we want our children to be children who know history. We want them to not be confused about you know, what was first, Babylon or Rome? Or, you know, like, we don't want them to be confused about these things. We want them to have an understanding of the big events and to be able to help them to put those in order. So what children aren't taught, men won't know. So we have the Babylonians, and then you have the Persians and the Median Empire. The Persians and the Medians, uh, they, they merge. Okay, it's the Medo-Persian Empire. What happens is Persia... Persia is sort of over the Medes, but there is this way in which, under Darius, uh, there is a, a dominance of the Medes over the Persians, even though the Persians are sort of the, uh, the empire. Okay, so that's something that happens. You have Babylon, which takes over Jerusalem. You have the Medo-Persian Empire. Go to page two of the post-exilic history handout. Under the Medo-Persian Empire, okay, the Medo-Persian Empire is the silver chest and arms in Daniel 2. Okay? It is the, in Daniel 7, it's the lopsided bear with three ribs in its mouth. The three ribs are supposed to be like the remains of three empires it ate. Like this bear ate other bears for lunch, three of them, and has a rib of each one stuck in his teeth. Okay? It's a very memorable bear, and he's lopsided. 
So this lopsided bear, the lopsidedness represents the Medes becoming dominant. The three ribs represent three empires that they take over. So this idea that beasts eat beasts is there. Okay, empires eat empires. So Cyrus II, also known as Cyrus the Great, Ezra starts there. Okay, so we had, we had Judah. It's conquered by the Babylonians. Babylon is conquered by the Persians. And Cyrus the Great issues the decree that you just heard Deacon Schaefer read for the rebuilding of the temple. Now, you're going to see different titles used for different kings. Okay? And these titles are a part of what makes things confusing. And so my goal for you is to get that these titles are not that complicated. But when you're just kind of bouncing around and you're like, Ahasuerus and Darius and Xerxes, Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, who are these guys? How many guys are ruling the same? What's, what's the deal here? Okay, so, so when you see things like the king of Persia, okay, these titles are used in very precise ways in the Bible. The grand title... The grand title that you're going to find is Artaxerxes. Okay? Artaxerxes is sort of this claim to be a universal emperor. Okay, Artaxerxes, at the, bottom of, at the bottom of page two, these are titles that are used. Artaxerxes is this claim to be the universal emperor. When you see it, here's one of the things that, that I want you to, to remember. It's a Greek word, and when you claim to be Artaxerxes, you're also claiming to rule the Greeks. Okay, when you see Artaxerxes, it's a guy that's like, I rule the whole world, including the Greeks. Okay, so this is a guy claiming to be the hegemon of the Greeks. Trying to take demanding tribute out of them. The word Ahasuerus is the old Persian title for emperor. The word Ahasuerus is the old Persian word for emperor. So when you see somebody named Ahasuerus, you're seeing somebody who claims to be emperor but they are not claiming to have hegemony over the Greeks. They're not extracting tribute out of the Greeks. And the word Darius, we all think of Darius as like a proper name for a guy. Darius means stat holder or scepter holder. It means a one who governs. Okay? Darius means the guy with the authority. And You'll often see also the idea of the king of Persia brought up. Okay, the king of Persia is when you rule Persia, but you don't have you don't have rule over the whole empire. What's gonna what we're gonna run into is a guy who is known as Darius. A guy who is known as Darius. What happens is there is a collapsing of the empire. There's this there's a king. There's an emperor. This emperor dies, and a guy pretends to be his brother. And he's like, I'm the emperor now. Okay, he's named Pseudo Smyrdis. Pseudo fake Smyrdis, the name of the brother of the emperor. Right? So it'd be sort of like if you know my son Logan were emperor, and then he dies, and then somebody pretends to be Ethan, and they we go, but it's not Ethan. And so we all know he's not Ethan, so it's Pseudo Ethan. Okay? That is that's what Pseudo Smyrdis is, except it's a more fun name, Smyrdis. So we have Pseudo-Smyrtus. 
this guy is a fake. And he's only able to pull off pretending to be this guy for a very limited time. So he is not emperor for very long. And so what you end up with is this period of time where there's seven guys who are not the emperor trying to rule together. And then Darius ends up kind of taking over out of that seven. So that's, that's the story there. Okay? But during that time, Darius has to like consolidate power over Persia. And then he has to reconsolidate control over the whole empire. And then he has to get the Greeks to start paying taxes again, which is a problem that people in the European Union understand very well. So Darius could feel for them. So that idea that there is this staging, what you will find is you've got the same guy with different titles at different times, and so you have to understand the title. So I'll remind you of that as we run into this, but I feel like if you kind of get that story, first of all, it's fun, and secondly, it will help you to kind of get why this is going on, what the chaos is. And so the Jews are just kind of watching everybody kill everybody, trying to have this, like, you know, who gets to control the throne thing going on, and they're just like, so we're going to, can we build a temple? Is this, all right, let's keep doing this. So that is, that's what's happening. You have all this chaos going on around them, empire eating empire and people killing each other to take over the throne, and they are trying to continue to do the work of God in the midst of all of that. So you go to page three, and there's an effort to reduce the information. So Philip Kaiser's thing, great. But the goal here is to reduce the information so you could just kind of read the timeline. Okay, and I'll probably someday fix this. I have it starting in 607, and I'm going to have to now change it to 606. Sorry, Ethan, you're going to have to do it. I will pretend, and I will take the credit. And, and we will have the, uh, the new decree to rebuild in 536. I made him literally change it. He had it right. I made him change it, and I'm going to make him change it back. It's, really, it's rough to be him. So that idea, this, this timeline is off from one year from Pastor Kaiser's. It'll be made right. But right now, you've got it here so you can see it in a simple form. And that simple form is enabling you to just kind of see here are the major events. So you can line those up as they occur. You can see the dates, and this is a simple way to give you that. So you have 607, Nebuchadnezzar's first attack and plunder of Jerusalem. 599, Nebuchadnezzar's second attack on and thorough plundering of Jerusalem. 588, Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple in Jerusalem. You're probably used to me saying 586. Okay, and So, like I said, there's the plus or minus two thing going on. Okay, so you, this destruction of Jerusalem, that's the really big event after which the Book of Lamentations was written. Okay, so the Book of Lamentations is about what happened. What you see on our timeline here is 588, the destruction of the temple. So, Remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar losing his mind and eating grass and having hair that's like eagle's feathers and nails that are super long? All right, so that's, we got that in 570 B.C. If I've said A.D. at all, I'm sorry, it's B.C. before Christ. I don't know if I said A.D. or not. So, 562, Nebuchadnezzar dies. 538, Cyrus the Great conquers the Babylonian Empire. And then big orange letters. 537, Cyrus the Great decrees that the Jews ought to return to their land and that the temple ought to be rebuilt. 
Okay, so that's what happens in Ezra 1. So when you get to Ezra chapter 6, there's a gap in time. Ezra chapter 6 has a, a gap in time. So what you've got is these people that are trying to stop the building of the walls, sorry, the building of the temple. And what we get during that gap is some of the prophetic writings to get the people to start building again. Okay, so my hope is that you have this. This is starting to help you to see there's a basic timeline that makes sense, and this is not a bunch of crazy writings that have no relation to each other. Okay, so you have this time where they stop building, and the prophets come in and tell the people to keep doing the work. So, Go to page four of the post-exilic timeline. And as for 6.15, you have the completion of the construction of the temple. It's 5.15 B.C. So what you have is you have the decree to build, and you got about 20, 21 years later, the temple is done. And at the same time, what I want you to understand is so you got this 20-year period where there's a building of the temple going on, major construction project, major effort, major use of resources, all sorts of problems. We're going to read about those problems. At the same time, they didn't wait for the temple to be done to start worshiping. They dedicate an altar quickly. And they get rolling. And they start the foundation. And as they're building, they're worshiping God throughout that time. Okay, so what we have, the reason I think that reading through Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, reading through these related prophets is going to be so valuable for us is because we're sitting here in the destroyed Western civilization and we have to figure out how we worship God and rebuild and see the church become a significant thing again and how to defend ourselves and build walls and guard ourselves against all sorts of things and have people come in and say, Let's join, let us join your work, but don't hold us to your standards. We have to deal with all of these same problems. And what I want is for you to see the wild ways that the Lord God Almighty blesses His people as they seek to work. So we'll see that. We'll see the construction there. What we're also going to see is we're going to, after that, we're going to go into the book of Esther. And what's going to happen in the book of Esther is you're going to have this story about a guy named Haman who really hates Mordecai and really hates the Jews. And he develops a conspiracy for a genocide of the Jews. And so you're going to end up with this story of the organization of militias of Jews fighting to stop that genocide. And I thought that some of you might be mildly interested in the organization of militias just as a matter of information and about the idea of resisting tyranny 
and the idea of preserving yourself in the face of people who want to kill you. Nehemiah starts, and what you have is the walls around Jerusalem that were rebuilt by Ezra have been destroyed because of the fact that there were armies bent on destroying the Jews in the middle of this country who came to try to kill them. And so they won the battle, but they are very weak. And Nehemiah hears the news of this after Esther and goes and seeks to help them to rebuild the walls. And the damage is so bad that it's a 12-year project. Okay, so 20 years to build the temple. This genocidal war in which the Jewish militias win. And then the rebuilding of the wall, 12 years. So I'm sure none of you can find any parallels to modern times about the need to rebuild the church, a fear of some sort of civil war, and the idea that after that you might have to work to reestablish order and power. I'm sure none of you are thinking about anything like that. But just in case some of you are interested in it, these books seem to be a timely overlay with things we might be thinking about. So those are what occur in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And really, if you want to memorize how they fit together time-wise, the best way to think of it is Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah. Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah. Now, as we look at the text of Ezra, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 22, is going to be about the return of the exiles and the rebuilding of the temple. The return of the exiles occurs in chapters 1 and 2. Chapter 2 is 70 verses, and it's a list. And I'm going to give you a magnificent sermon on the list next week. I don't know how many of you can remember list series that I do, but my list sermons are amazing. They are so good. You're like, if you could just preach through my grocery list, that would be fantastic. Okay? So we're going to walk through the list. I'm going to show you all sorts of things in this list that are useful and insightful and to group it for you. Okay? So we're going to look at that. The thing here first, we're reminded of the decree. You remember the end of of Second Chronicles, what you had was this decree from Cyrus was given to us. Okay, so it's the it's the end of Second Chronicles. This decree, and it's given to us here as well. So the decree of Cyrus is verses one to four. There's preparations for returning, and there's a bunch of stuff that is sent with the returnees. So we're going to talk about these eleven verses. All right, so Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, and then we have the decree. Now let me remind you of something on your, on your timeline. Okay, whichever timeline you want to look at, what you're going to find is that what you've got is when the first attack and plunder of Jerusalem occurred, it's 70 years 
from that attack and plundering until the decree to rebuild the temple. Okay, so my timeline has 607 as the first attack and 537 as the decree to rebuild. That's going to be shifted, right, based upon the different days. Because again, the plus or minus a couple. So I'm trying to figure that out, but we'll have all the documents line up in the near future. But you get that there's 70 years from that first attack until the decree to rebuild. That's the 70 years where what had happened was God said, every seven years, I want you to let the land rest for a year. You are not going to farm for that year. That was a Sabbath year, and the idea was to give the people rest and the land rest. And the people of Israel did that sometimes, but not others. And so what you can find from the period of the conquest of Canaan in about 1400 under Joshua until 586, the destruction of Jerusalem, no, sorry, until 607, that's my date, forgive me, I've got I to manage these things, I just... So 607, when that first attack from Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so Joshua goes in the land about 1400, and then around 607 BC. Okay, you're looking at like 800 years. Now, that period of 800 years, if one in seven of those years were supposed to be land rests, right, you would expect there to be something like 100 and umpteen years of rest, right? Some number over 110. You'd expect that. But God only extracts 70 years out of them. So that means at least a third of the time they kept those land Sabbaths. There are 70 of them that he's going to extract out of them by saying, I'm destroying you, I'm exiling you, and I'm going to make the land rest for 70 years. Okay? So there's 70 years that they didn't give the land its rest. And so these 70 years in between the first attack from Nebuchadnezzar until the decree to rebuild, that's the rest of the land. And now God puts them back, right? There were all these threats. If you read Leviticus and you read Deuteronomy, it says, if you don't keep my law, the land will spit you out. And it did. And now God is restoring. He's bringing back. And so after having extracted that, that time, having extracted that rest of the land, the fulfillment of that prophecy that there would be a restoration occurs. Now that restoration, we're told about it also in Daniel 9. And what happens is the Lord stirred up the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, 
which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God. Which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, beside the freewill offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Okay, so there's the decree. Having Cyrus do this would be kind of like, I want you to just imagine for a second, resident Joe Biden establishing the reformed religion and seeking to endow it and asking me to come and advise him on how to properly establish the Westminster Standards and to help Arizona to become a special place for the reformed faith and to endow us with billions of dollars to see that put into place. Okay? That is what I want you to imagine happening. This is the level of like, what? That this decree is. So that's this idea of here is a part of the empire where this is going to be supported and established. And then you have the resident using his you know, White House Twitter account or whatever and saying, I encourage any Reformed Presbyterians to move to Phoenix, Arizona and help with the proper establishment of the Reformed faith. And I encourage everybody in Massachusetts and New York and California to give of their Bitcoin to these people to move there and to make it so that they can use these things to be able to help to see the church properly established and endowed and maintained. Okay, that's what this decree would be like if it were a modern decree. Now, verse 5. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all whose spirits God had moved arose to go up and build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things beside all that was willingly offered. So there's the believers doing this stuff. There's those who are part of the houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites and others who were stirred to do this. People who were converts. And then there's people around them who gave them stuff. Does this remind you of Exodus at all? With the Israelites leaving and asking their neighbors to give them money as they left? So this is sort of a, another Exodus type event. Exodus out of exile. So this idea of people from Judah, people from Benjamin, priests and Levites, and then Gentiles who had converted, going. Now, why Judah, Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites? Well, you remember there, was the, there were the northern tribes. The northern tribes were all the tribes except for Benjamin, Judah, and most of the Levites. What you had was the northern tribes were conquered by the Assyrians and they were exiled there. Now some of them 
also end up obviously living and continuing to maintain the biblical faith scattered around, and some of them come back. Some of them come during this restoration. But they are not emphasized here. One of the tribes, for example, Simeon, was actually in the south. Their territory was in the territory that was Judah's territory. When the nation split into the northern kingdom and southern kingdom, their hatred of Judah was so high that they leave their ancestral lands, the inheritance the Lord has given to them, so that they can move to help to be a part of the separatist faction. Okay, that is what happens in that split. And so what you end up with is Benjamin, and Jerusalem's in Benjamin, and you have Judah, and you have the Levites, and what happens with the Levites is, you remember King Jeroboam establishes his own priesthood, his own temples, his own golden calves, and he says, these are Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt. And that's the origin of the Samaritan religion. And so what you have is, these guys who are were there, they kind of make it so the Levites don't have a place anymore. So the Levites consolidated generally into Judah, into the southern kingdom. Because in Judah, the priesthood was maintained, the priesthood existed and was not being initially countermanded and rejected in Toto, even though there was all sorts of idolatry. You still had multiple reformations, multiple times where the proper uh, worship was still put back into place, um, recovenant things that occur. So we have the heads of the houses, the father's houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So this is a, a reformation and restoration that's initiated by Cyrus as a civil magistrate. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with precious things, beside all that was willingly offered. So the willingly offered, these would be the free will offerings of the believers, the people that are around them are also giving them stuff, just like we talked about, occurred with the Egyptians, even the unbelieving Egyptians who gave money to the Israelites as they left. The King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. Right, so these are articles of the temple, and Nebuchadnezzar put them in the temples of false gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Okay, so this would be a magistrate over Judah. This is the number of them. 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 10, sorry, verse 10, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Shesbazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. Okay, so there's authorization to do this. There's a grant of jurisdiction to do this. There's a place where there's going to be an established uh, religion of the biblical religion. There's the request for people to give money. There's the people organizing to go do this. There's money coming from the treasury. And there's also all of this stuff that had been taken by the conquest of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple that's being restored to them. 
This is dramatic. That's a pretty dramatic start. So comments, questions, and objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.